Good morning to each of you. And greetings in the name of Jesus. As Luke was praying, my mind went to some verses, and I don't know exactly, I, I know where they are, but I can't call exactly, but it, the, the prayer requests, many of them, are for those that are older, those that are sick. And there's verses in, I believe it's Second Corinthians, where Paul says our, our bodies are groaning. Because our tent's getting frail. It's getting threadbare. And our bodies are groaning that they can be clothed upon with our house from heaven. And it says that that's the reason God made us, that we would be able to experience that life in His presence, our new bodies, eternal bodies, redeemed. And as we pray that God would take a sister home, we have hope in that truth. Are we looking forward to that? On another note, when we meet each other on a daily basis, we often use the greeting, how are you? How old is that greeting? I came across a verse in my study that I had to, had to smile. Exodus 18, verse 7. says, And Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and did obeisance and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare, and they came into the tent. I see them saying, How are you? Well, how are you? How are you getting along? So our, we, you know, how long it's been, they probably didn't ask it the same way, but I had to think of that. We ask each other, How are you? We ask each other, each other's welfare. So, we're just following the example of Moses and Jethro. This morning I would like to continue looking at the covenants of God and specifically today the, the covenant of sanctification. You can turn to Exodus chapter 19. We may think of this as the Mosaic Covenant. But as we think about what it entails, I think the, the term, the title, Covenant of Sanctification, is, is very fitting. And that is because when we define sanctification or what it means to be sanctified, few phrases, simple phrases, to be holy. And I think one that resonates with me that I can 
get my mind around, and that is for holy or sanctification, and that's to be to be set apart, to be made clean is is in that idea as well. But we have certain vessels, dishes, we have certain tools that are set apart. They're they're made for certain uses, and we can take especially a a dish that's on the counter and dirty. We have a lot of those around. And you wash it and you sanctify it and you put something in it to drink. You set it apart. And I'm glad that this cup was sanctified. It makes the water a lot better than if it wasn't. Keep that in mind as we look at this covenant that God made and with who He made it and why He made it. Exodus 19, we have this covenant introduced, beginning in verse 1. I'll be reading the first eight verses. In the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day came they into the wilderness of Sinai. For they were departed from Rephidim and were come to the desert of Sinai, and they pitched in the wilderness, and there Israel camped before the mount. And Moses went up unto God, and the Lord called unto him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shalt thou say to the house of Jacob, and tell the children of Israel, Ye have seen what I did to, unto the Egyptians, and how I bare you on eagles' wings, and brought you unto myself. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, and an holy nation, these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. And Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all the words which the Lord commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. The setting here Three months after their miraculous deliverance from Egypt, the people are camped before this mountain. Think of what all they had experienced in the last four months. They had experienced or observed the plagues, mighty demonstration of God's power and judgment on Egypt, the Egyptians. They had all participated in the Passover. Because if they hadn't, they wouldn't have been here. I don't know how many didn't. I often wonder. How many didn't trust the Lord, didn't have, uh, weren't afraid of the Lord enough that they didn't put blood on their doorpost? We're not told. They had all walked through the Red Sea on dry ground and had seen the destruction of the Egyptian army. And in the months that followed, they had complained, they had tasted quail, they were given manna, they drank water from the rock, and they experienced victory over the Amalekites in battle. And now here they are camped before the mountain, this mountain that God had told Moses that 
This is a sign that I'm going to be with you because I'm going to bring you here. They'd experienced a lot. It's also a bit disconcerting to, as you read through chapter 18 or chapter 17 of Exodus, how much they murmured and how quickly they doubted God. They complained and they said, You brought us out here to die. And God didn't let them die, He was testing them perhaps. But it says here in verse 4, it says, You've seen what I did to the Egyptians. You tell the people this. You saw what I did. I provided for you. I bear you on eagles' wings. You had no escape from that army when you were standing at the Red Sea. No way out. I delivered you. And I brought you unto myself. And God says that that's the basis of what I'm coming to you to present here. I did, I bear, I brought you. You have seen this, this, the deliverance, you've experienced it, you've been redeemed. I fulfilled my promise to Abraham about his, his descendants being in Egypt for 400 years and they would be brought out. Here you are because I have been working on your behalf. And a question to consider is, it doesn't use the word redemption here, but the brought you to myself has that idea in mind. They were redeemed from bondage. God brought them out. What follows redemption? Think of it in your personal life. You've been saved. If you have called on the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior and honored Him as Lord, what follows redemption? It's obedience, is it not? Those who say, Lord, Lord, and do not the things which Jesus says are not truly saved. And here... God says, I did these things for you. And in verse 5, he says, Now, therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then. So this covenant is God, again, a covenant is stating, God stating his intent or what he expects of his people or both. And here he's giving some of both. I brought you out. And now he says, I want you to be a peculiar treasure. The word peculiar, we may think of as something a little strange, something peculiar, it's different. But the idea here is that of a special treasure. That perhaps uh, using it in terminology of wealth. It's something that we hold dear, we guard. A treasure. And these people, God wanted the children of Israel to be a people closer to him than any other people. Now it says here, he does not deny his right to the rest of humanity because all the earth is mine, all peoples are mine, but I want you to be in in a place that no other people are. Closer ties, fellowship, understanding. And in that place, you will also have special responsibility. 
In verse 6 it says, And ye shall be to me a kingdom of priests. What was a priest? A priest is a man that stood between God and man. And the nation of Israel here was then to represent God to the rest of the world. They were also to be a holy nation. They were under a special obligation. Nation. When we talk about a nation, it's a definable bound. There's people that live there. You can, you can see who they are. God says, I want you to be an identifiable people that is set apart, holy, set apart for a specific task. And part of that task was just revealing or demonstrating the character of God, fulfilling his laws to the world around them and showing them. God was about to give them the details of this high calling of lifestyle. Think about this. You should be a peculiar treasure, a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Think of all that we have, all that all that history has brought forward, but all that we have today because of this people, this sanctified people, this people group that God called out, that God redeemed and then made this covenant with. Romans chapter 3, verses 1 and 2 says, What advantage then hath the Jew, or what profit is there in circumcision? Much every way, chiefly that unto them were committed the oracles of God. God didn't go and speak to the other nations and give them his word directly. But God committed his his message to these people. And later in Romans chapter 9, it says, Paul is talking about his kinsmen. He says, who are Israelites, Romans 9, 4, to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises, whose are the fathers and of whom as concerning the flesh Christ came who is over all, God blessed forever. Amen. It is through Israel and through this covenant that we have the revelation of, of God, of His holiness, of what He expected of mankind because of who He is. We have the prophecies through the children of Israel of the Messiah, God used these people to bring us something. But God laid out these terms of obligation and responsibility here. And Moses relayed them to the people. And they had a decision to make. They knew what they had experienced. They had seen God work. They weren't without knowledge of, of God's ability. They had a decision to make. And it says that they answered together. All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. They agreed to the terms. And so then God outlines what, what, what these words are that they were to obey. As you consider the context and the age that they were living in, uh, 
the idolatry, the, the pagan cultures that were all around. And you think of, of Egypt, the many gods there that, that God brought judgment on and proved his superiority over. As humanly, seems like everywhere humans are, power means control. And in social aspect, the rich oppress the poor. Think about that as we get into these instructions, the, the meat of this covenant. In chapter 20 of Exodus, we have the Ten Commandments. And these Ten Commandments, you can break a lot of things down a lot of different ways, but these commandments, if you think about what we want to look at them today, is their impact on relationships. And the first section is the impact on man's relationship with God. Exodus 20, verse 1. And God spake all these words, saying, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. <clears throat> thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath. <clears throat> Excuse me. Or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless that taketh his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it thou shalt, do no, shalt not do any work, thou, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, nor thy stranger that is within thy gates. For in six days the Lord made the heaven, the earth, and heaven and earth, the sea, and all that in them is, and rested the seventh day. Wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Again, God starts out here. I have a right to tell you what to do because I have redeemed you. And first and foremost, no other gods before me. Now, I know someone has said, asked the question, well, if it's no gods before me, then how many can you have after? Well, the idea here is before my face. There is, you are to have no gods but me. That imperative of supreme Absolute loyalty. One true God. Monotheism. One God. That's the first and foremost aspect of relationship with God. The second is that of not making a graven image. Can we say a simple reality? God is a spirit. God cannot be likened unto anything. And when we embarked on this study, we looked at Isaiah 40, and there the, the comparison of God 
to any earthly God, any concept of, of a deity outside of God and the frailty of that, the faultiness of that idea. But here it says, no graven images. Because idols are the result of us trying to hold religion and, and worship in a natural human realm. We can't see spirit. And as Jesus said, you can't see the wind, but you can see what it's blowing on. They knew that God was there, but they hadn't seen God. Don't make a graven image because then you lower God to something you can handle and see and God is far beyond that. Keep the reality simple. No graven images. Thirdly, we see the command to not take the Lord's name in vain. I think that this has different applications. Some look at this verse and say profanity. Some look at this verse and say integrity. I think both are valid. I mentioned this several months ago here in a message, I believe, that of, of taking the Lord's name in vain, that of being called by the name of Christ, being professing oneself to be a child of God, to be obedient, and then walking contrary to, to the truth in disobedience to the word of God. That is taking his name in vain. And you think about this here is the people were to be this special set apart nation walking before the other nations of the world. That was a tremendous responsibility to bear. They were to walk in truth, to not be hypocritical. And fourthly here, we have the command to remember. Remember the Sabbath day. The Sabbath day was that, I believe, that helped them to identify with God on an ongoing weekly basis. Think about that. In, in our lives, our, our weeks, do they revolve around Wednesday? Do they revolve around Thursday? Sunday is our day of rest, the Lord's day. And our week starts and ends there, a weekly reminder. And for the children of Israel, it was a, a reminder that they were gods, that they were to rest as God had. Their relationship, pointing them back to God, the one that they were to be supremely loyal to. But you know, I find it interesting and a blessing to see here in verse 6, God's ultimate desire for obedience was because he wanted his people to love him. If you have authority, and most of you do to some degree somewhere, you desire that those that are under you obey, follow instructions. And sometimes it takes chastisement to 
enforce what needs to be followed. But how much greater pleasure is it when those under your authority respond out of a good attitude and out of a desire to please? Do we fear God out of obligation only or out of love? Matthew 22 sums up these first four commandments. Jesus said unto him, Matthew twenty two thirty seven, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy mind. This is the first and great commandment. So it takes all those and puts them together and love God and it takes care of the rest. Israel, love God. It'll take care of the rest. Jesus went on to say the second commandment is like unto it. Thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. And that brings us to the second section, second uh, part of these commandments, these relationships. And now we're looking at man's relationship with each other. It begins by looking at family relationships. In verse 12 of Exodus 20, Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. That doesn't go into too much detail in depth, but I believe it's foundational to our relationships. You know, the family is the most basic social unit. Now we have person, individuals, but once they come together, then there can be relationships. And the family is the most basic, and it's also the most important. When parents are committed to each other and love each other, they bring stability in a home, stability for the children. When parents respect each other and and the children respect the parents. That builds a respect for God. I don't think we can overestimate the value of godly homes. And I also believe that Satan knows that. And he would love to tear our homes apart to bring contention to bring disrespect whether it's between spouses or between children and parents or even between parents and children. There's a saying, as goes the family, so goes the nation. And if this is true, where are we headed? It's a very basic and fundamental relationships in the family. 
And God says, you need to honor thy father and thy mother. You know, this is an area that most of us, a number of us, as young, younger families, growing families, I believe face tremendous opportunity and tremendous challenge. And if you need something to pray for me in, Pray for me as I endeavor to lead my family. I feel much my shortcomings. Secondly here, we have social relations addressed. Verses 13 and 14. Thou shalt not kill Thou shalt not commit adultery. God is reinforcing the sacredness of human life. Thou shalt not kill. Very basic. But do we respect each other? Do we respect human life? I think if you would study, and I have not studied much, into the, the secular societies of the day, but many of the pagans in their idol worship and in their ceremonies, we know there was child sacrifice in many of them. There was a disregard for human life. And secondly, here in this, verse 14, thou should not commit adultery. And sexual purity is, is also tied to this concept of, of sacredness of life and that respect, that mutual respect for each other. Upholding God's plan for commitment between a man and a woman. Then we have Relations, economic relations, and how we deal with each other on that level. In verse 15, thou shalt not steal. Verse 16, thou shalt not bear false witness against thy neighbor. And 17, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. It says that private property is to be respected. When you have something... I am not to go take it. Furthermore, honesty and integrity are to be the hallmark of, of dealings with each other. Not bearing false witness, not telling an untruth to get something. And lastly here, again I see respect coupled with contentment, but just I see respecting each other and, and putting other people on a, on a, a level of, of can we say that we, we just all, we're all on the same level. I'm not, I don't have the right to force myself or my will upon anyone else by either stealing or 
telling the untruth or desiring what someone has, by killing someone, by taking another man's wife. These commandments are the foundation of this, of this covenant of sanctification, setting these people apart, different from the world around them. And upon this foundation, there is a much more defined code of conduct that God lays out in the following chapters. And I'm not going to get into them too deeply. But if you read through chapters 21 to 23, you see a lot of those further directives. And I'll just kind of go over a few. We see very definite instructions on how masters and servants were to masters were to deal with their servants and servants were to respond. We see care for the poor and the distressed, for the widow. It talks about interactions with neighbors and if someone's animal comes and hurts you or yours, how you're supposed to deal with that, how to handle theft and crime. In personal life, here again is reiterated and enlarged upon the idea of sexual propriety and of how you, how you handle yourself. We see then the value of rest, both, both for oneself. Again, that Sabbath day, it's enlarged upon. He gives more specific instructions. Rest for oneself, but also there's the idea of the rest for the land in the one out of seven years. Why did God put these things down? Why did God give them these instructions? Leviticus has a lot more to say on, on some of these things yet. But five times in Leviticus, the phrase is stated by God. Be ye holy, for I am holy. Be ye set apart, be ye sanctified, be ye holy, for I am holy. God wanted his people that he had saved, he had redeemed, he had called out, now he's making a covenant. He wants them to be holy because they are representing him to the world. And God wants the world to know that he is holy. We also see instructions for their religion, observing that Sabbath, and then the three feasts in Exodus 23. The three feasts are, are put down here. God commands them. And I'm going to read verses 14 through 17 of Exodus 23. Three times thou shalt keep a feast unto me in the year. Thou shalt keep the feast of unleavened bread. Thou shalt eat unleavened bread seven days as I commanded thee in the time appointed in the month Abib. For in it thou camest out of Egypt and none shall appear before me empty. And the feast of harvest, the first fruits of thy labors, which thou hast sown in the field, and the feast of ingathering, which is, at the end of, which is in the end of the year when thou hast gathered in thy labors out of the field. Three times in the year shall all thy males appear before the Lord God. And I believe the feast reminded them of their relationship with God, of their being set apart. They, they were to come in a special way three times a year. 
present themselves, offer sacrifices, feast, eat, rejoice. These things are laid out before the people. And then in Exodus 24, we have the covenant is ratified. The people come, it says in verse 1 of Exodus 24, And he said unto Moses, Come up unto the Lord, thou and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and seventy of the elders of Israel, and worship ye afar off. And Moses alone shall come near to the Lord, but they shall not come nigh, neither shall the people go up with him. And Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words which the Lord hath said will we do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord, and rose up early in the morning and built an altar under the hill and twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the children of Israel which offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen unto the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he sprinkled on the altar. And he took the book of the covenant and read in the audience of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said we will do and be obedient. And Moses took the blood and sprinkled it on the people and said, Behold the blood of the covenant, which the Lord hath made with you concerning all these words. So God brought this covenant in a, in a more def- definite way. It was written down by Moses. He read it to them and they said, We're ready to go ahead. And what follows is the shedding of blood in sacrifices, burnt offerings. The need for blood and the sacrificial system that was instituted was a constant reminder of the need to be set apart, the need to be holy, the need to be obedient. There was that constant reminder that they were set apart by God and had a standard to live by. And they were reminded yearly of that need for atonement. Once a year, the priest made atonement for the sins of the people. They failed this covenant in many ways. They transgressed. They did not obey. But God had provided a way through the sacrifices that their sins would be covered. And it's a window into the future when the great high priest, Christ, would come in and make atonement, atonement for us once and for all. Why did God make this covenant? Why did God call this people out and set them apart and give them these ordinances, these rules, these commandments? I don't have a complete answer to that, but turn with me to Galatians chapter 3. We think about this, these covenants. We looked at the covenant of, of redemption that God made with humanity, in, at, with Adam. The covenant of dominion, of preservation with Noah. The covenant of selection with Abraham and now this covenant of sanctification. And all these covenants are stepping stones in the history of humanity that God is leading toward 
His will to be done and whatever future culmination will be. But this covenant is talked about here in Galatians 3. It's contrasted a little bit with the covenant that God made with Abraham. Beginning of verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and to his seed were the promises made, and he saith not, and to seeds is of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ. And this I say that the covenant, which was confirmed before of God in Christ, the law, which was 430 years after, cannot disannul, that it should make the promise of none effect. I think what he's saying there is, that promise of selection to Abraham and that promise of his children being blessed and being part of, of those who come to God by faith are the children of Abraham. They are God's selected people. But he's saying this covenant that we just looked at, the Mosaic law, it did not do away with that covenant. It did not annul that covenant and make the promise of, of no effect. But it had a part to fulfill in the interim because that promise to Abraham wasn't completely fulfilled in Christ yet. Verse 18, For if the inheritance be of the law, it is, of, it is no more a promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Wherefore then serveth the law? It was added because of transgressions, till the seed should come to whom the promise was made. And it was ordained by angels in the hand of a mediator. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one, but God is one. Is the law then against the promises of God? God forbid. For if there had been a law given which could have given life, verily righteousness should have been by the law. But the scripture hath concluded all under sin that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. But before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto the faith which should afterwards be revealed. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified by faith. After that faith is come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. So God made this promise to Abraham, the promise of redemption and justification by faith. This law did not do away with that, but the law gave, was given to teach us about God and about ourselves. I believe the law gave us a glimpse into God's character like nothing else could. I believe it put a restraint on evil among his people. It gave them bounds. It gave them uh, instructions that would, would help them to live righteously. But we know that it demonstrated even more a need that it brought to men's reality to their understanding the need for grace because no one could completely fulfill all this law all the time. It was a schoolmaster. It was added because of transgression. It shows us where we are in and of ourselves without Christ. God called this nation of Israel to a high calling of representing himself to the world. Does that sound familiar to you?
Where else do we read a similar phrases to this? And ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. And ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Is that familiar? 1 Peter chapter 2. Beginning at verse 7. It says, Unto you therefore which believe in Christ by faith, he is precious. But unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense even to them that stumble at the word, being disobedient, whereunto also they were appointed. So that's contrasting those who do not believe in the Lord, those who do not accept Jesus as, as the Savior and Redeemer. It says, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people that ye should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold glorify God in the day of visitation. We don't pull out the book of Exodus and the book of Leviticus to know exactly how we are to live. We don't have an altar with a bunch of concrete and hoses to wash the blood down here so that we can be right with God and that so we can show people what God expects. That was taken care of when Christ made atonement. And if you believe that Jesus is the Savior, and believing you have life through his name, then you are part of that chosen generation, that royal priesthood. You have a responsibility to show the character of God to the world about you. That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Are you up to that task? Are you willing to say all that the Lord has said we will do? I trust as we looked at this covenant that God made with his people and the reason for it and the covenant that we make with God as we accept Christ and as we took, it's also interesting to look at the way they, they experienced Deliverance for the Passover. It says then they were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea, which is there in Corinthians that will be in our memory passage. And then it's that they took a covenant upon themselves, and we do the same. We are redeemed by the blood of Christ. We are baptized, and we make a covenant 
to be faithful. Let's keep that in our minds and, and remember that we are to be set apart. We are vessels set apart to show the glory of God to the world around us. Our Father, we bow in your presence, thanking you for your, your goodness, for your mercy, for your grace that allows us to call you our Father. Thank you for the scripture that show us who you are in a way and for Christ, the living word that came and showed us even more clearly who you are. And I pray, Lord, that as we acknowledge our frailties and our shortcomings, our sins without Christ, that you would forgive us, that you would cleanse us, that you enable us by your spirit to walk walk worthy and to walk with lives that are are faithful to the call to show forth your praises that as we are part of your peculiar people and that holy nation that we could exemplify Christ in our in our walk in our talk that we could be a faithful priesthood in pointing men to you. Bless each one of the congregation here and listening in that our lives could be filled with your joy and peace for your honor and glory and for your kingdom's furtherance. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.